Adam, how are you on the Statues and Stories Hour? How are you today? Good evening, everybody. Now, uh, do we right away talk about what women did with their right to vote, or we're going to just have to wait until you just give us the good part of the story? There's a chronology, but you can always jump in whenever you want, and uh, be careful with that chronology, because uh, there's a lot lot of detail which makes it interesting to talk about. But let me tee up what the topic is. So as everybody knows, this is the Statutes and Stories Hour, and we talk for this time period from 7 to 8 about American history, and usually it's early American history, because that's sort of the wheelhouse of the website, statutesandstories.com, the revolutionary generation and early American history. <clears throat> but I've been asked uh, by various organizations to talk about because it's an important anniversary. This is the 100th anniversary of women having the right to vote, which is the 19th Amendment. And you have to, by the way, you have two millennials in the studio with you who um, had the right to vote because of someone as visionary as the first pioneers of women's suffrage. You guys get to introduce yourself after he gives us the full volley. Go ahead. Let me, let me just uh, introduce the subject, and then I'm, I'm flattered and I'm great to hear that we've got uh, uh, some younger um, and uh, potentially more interesting than me people who t- can join the conversation. And they don't use that word like that I'm always criticizing. <laughs> so the, the quick observation is that uh, because it's the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, and I was asked to speak about the subject to different groups, so the answer is it's expanded. You know, I went to... I usually focus on the first hundred years. And it also makes the point that this is an older, um, you know, when you talk about uh, topics we normally talk about are older topics. So this topic reaches back far into American history, but it was only relatively recently. If it's the 100th anniversary, that means women got to vote for the first time in a presidential election in 1920. And I'll just give the date of when the 19th Amendment was adopted, which was in 1919. So that's why it's 100 years from 1919. So that, that's a real quick observation or a background about what we're going to be talking about. And I welcome anyone else who's in the studio and joining us today online. And well, go ahead and introduce yourself. Yeah. Hello, I am Lucia Scaramacchia, the conservative next door. She has a blog She has a blog as well and a podcast. YouTube channel, yes, the conservative next door. And with me, I have the beautiful Alejandra Lamboy, who yeah. is the creative director of everything that goes into and the she's conservative also a go- next door. She's also a ghost in the studio because she doesn't want to talk. She just smiles. <laughs> Her job is video. And then, of course, you have marvelous, victorious Ed Vidal. Hello there, Adam. Welcome, everybody. And right. the conservative next door is a neighbor. If, uh, we're, all, we're all neighbors in this conversation. Yes, go ahead, Adam. And I'm just going to throw out that we've got some listeners. I know for a fact I wanted to shout out, shout out to uh, some of the folks in New York who are listening today. So. WSQFradio.com forward slash live. Bring in all of New York. As long as you're not drinking from the drinking water. We're also now on www.radio.garden. Yes, on satellite, yes. On satellite. Okay, go for it, Adam. Tell us a new one. Let me invite people who are listening and either listening live or listening subsequently on the podcast to go to the website, statutesandstories.com. And here there's actually a PowerPoint presentation that I'm going to be working off of. And people can follow along in the PowerPoint. And I always like to point out that a good PowerPoint isn't somebody just reading from the slides. A good PowerPoint, you you look at the pictures and you talk about it. Uh, So this will be a lot more conversational than just reading from a PowerPoint. And as I like to say, jump in at any time. And this includes everyone in the studio to ask follow-up questions and to and to, throw, to, to flesh it out a little bit more. But uh, I think it makes
make sense to start with the actual text of the 19th Amendment. And again, to remind everybody, the 19th Amendment, this is the Bill of Rights was the first 10 amendments, and uh, then you had the Civil War Amendments and a couple other miscellaneous amendments. And the 19th Amendment is the, eventually, when it was adopted, and we're going to talk about the struggle to get it adopted today, when it was eventually adopted, women for the first time had the right to vote in federal elections, and we'll talk about how they did. On the margins, have the right in some states, and it'll be interesting to see which states, and maybe I'll ask everybody, what states do you think were the first to allow women to vote in state elections? Wyoming, because they needed women out west. That, that's, that's exactly right. So, and, and that's going to be part of the story, that Wyoming was desperate to bring in women because the ratio was 8 to 1, if you can imagine. Uh, all those guys and all those minors so will do anything to uh, expand. And they also need population in order to, become, to come in as a state. They were a territory, and there were certain thresholds you had to meet. And since you mentioned Wyoming... Come on, be honest. They needed women to get jiggy with it, so they start reproducing, for Christ's sake. They needed new... women to do the real work. That's right. New voters. It's exactly. all about the new voters. Since we brought up Wyoming, I'll mention that the Wyoming was actually, was actually the first state to have a female governor. So they not only became the first state to allow women to vote, but the first. You want to take a guess in here? It's not even fair for me to ask you. But do you think it was 1904? Which of course it couldn't be. But 1904, 1914, 1924, 1934, 1944, when when you elected the first governor of a, of a woman uh, to uh, to Wyoming, which was the first state to do that. Take, you want to take it just a wild guess? 24. Perfect. Yep. So Wyoming, they were very progressive in the sense. Damn. There you go. Uh, so, you know, this is only five years after the, the 19th Amendment was adopted. The other thing that I want to really cool. about Wyoming is when the Wyoming Territory was allowing women to vote, and they notified Congress that we're going to let women come in and we're going to join as a state with this in our Constitution. Congress was very reluctant to let them come in as a state allowing women as the first, and the Congress is sort of uh, resisting. And Wyoming, this is at the time when the latest technology was was um, you know, today we have telephone and internet. Back then they had, um, I was trying to think, a telegraph, right? So they sent the telegraph to Congress to say that if you do not let us come in with women, because Congress was trying to bar the door, uh, we're going to wait another 100 years before we come in as a state. So Wyoming, the state legislature, and it was all men in that Wyoming state legislature, from what I understand, basically read the riot at the Congress, that uh, this is what we want to do. We're a territory. We get to make up our own rules for our territory. And if we want to come in as a free state, allowing women to vote, that's what we're going to do. And Congress uh, rolled over. So hooray for Wyoming. So let's look at the text of the 19th Amendment. And the good news is the text is really short. And this is going to be the second page of the PowerPoint for anyone who's following us online. And the 19th Amendment, to give the dates, it was passed by Congress. And we can talk later about what the process is in order to adopt an amendment to the Constitution. And there are basically two ways to do it, two primary ways to do it. But it passed through Congress on June 4th of 1919. And that's a big struggle to get that passed through Congress on June 4th, 1919. And it was ratified by August 18th of 1920. So here's a question I'll ask, and it's not a fair question. But we didn't yet have 50 states. And in order for, once Congress approves a amendment, in order for it to get ratified by the states, you need three quarters of the states. So I would have asked you, how many states do you need? And the answer was 34. They needed 34 states. And the, the state that became the 34th state, the one that brought them over the finish line, was Tennessee. And I'll tell you later a story about 
Tennessee adopting and ratifying the 19th Amendment. So what does the text say? And it's really short. It's basically two sentences. In fact, it's not basically. It is two sentences. The first sentence says, the, the right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. So that is the, the guts and that is the, 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 the first sentence of the 19th Amendment. And then there's a follow-up sentence. The follow-up sentence is the enforcement provision. And the second sentence of the 19th Amendment says that Congress shall have the power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So here, and uh, this is the lawyer in me sort of asking this question, but uh, have you heard this language before? Does any of this sound familiar to anybody? Oh, Obamacare. Of... Sorry? No, sorry. I'm just being a no, go, jerk. Go back in time because we'll, we'll focus. The, my question is the 19th Amendment, this language builds upon a prior amendment. You want to take a guess what the 19th Amendment builds on? What prior amendment? Uh, what, 13, 14, and 15? Right. So this 13th Amendment outlawed the, slavery. The slavery we'll talk about that today because there was a big dispute about what to do. Uh, should women get the right to vote at the same time as the newly freed slaves after the Civil War? So the 13th Amendment outlawed slavery. The 14th Amendment made anyone born here a citizen, but I think it excluded Native Americans, and we can talk about that another well, subject night. to the jurisdiction hereof. Right. And then the 15th Amendment gave, it took a third amendment, the 15th Amendment, to give the, for, the former slaves, the freed slaves, the right to vote. So the 15th Amendment was the right that gave the suffrage to the former slaves. And the 19th Amendment basically copies and builds on the 15th Amendment, except instead of saying condition of servitude, says sex. So you can't deny the right to vote based upon uh, condition of servitude, which is the 15th Amendment, and now the 19th Amendment says you can't deny the right to vote based upon, and what I just read to you, based upon, what did it say, based, shall not be abridged or denied on account of sex. Um, so that's the 19th Amendment. So let's talk about the background. And here I want to go back to the, the time of the Revolution. At the time of the Revolution, you know, people weren't voting for president because we didn't have a president. But interestingly, New Jersey, of all the states, New Jersey in 1807, uh, after the revolution, the revolution 1776 is when we declared independence from England, and that's when each of the 13 colonies created their own constitutions. And New Jersey allowed women to vote. So interestingly, New Jersey, and that has to do with the drafting. I don't know if they did it purposely, but they had very broad language in the New Jersey Constitution, which allowed property holders to vote. And since it didn't limit it to male property holders, women were allowed to vote in New Jersey. But unfortunately, in 1807, New Jersey changed its mind and took away the franchise from women. And part of that had to do with the fact that uh, those who were in control in New Jersey uh, were more Democrat-Republican, and they anticipated that the female voters were more Federalist, so they didn't want women voting for the Federalist candidate. So there was a lot of politics in that decision in New Jersey. But that just goes to show there's going to be a big uphill battle. So women lost the right to vote in New Jersey starting in 1807. And this gets into some of the background, uh, and uh, if some of the folks want to participate in you know, giving thoughts on this. Uh, but the conventional wisdom at the time was that the job, and, and be careful when I talk tonight, I'm not giving my views, I'm talking about what the history was and what some of the thinking was, and we can debate some of this stuff. But in that time frame, in the early 1800s, uh, there were lots of limitations on what women could do. They could not bring lawsuits. They could not keep their own wages. They could not sign contracts. They were kept out of most professions. And uh, the vast majority of the population, according to a lot of the historical records, considered the place for a woman to be in the home. That was her job. And, of course, today we're a whole different world, thankfully. So this is the, the – by the way, it's not just that they couldn't keep their own wages, but they didn't even have custody rights of their own children. So well, but one, thing, one right they did have, they've always uh, had, is the right to change their mind. 
Excuse me. Sorry, that was a tacky joke. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, <laughs> so. sorry, Adam. I just, you know, I had to say it because you know, New Jersey changed its mind. Here, but we can we can talk about it. And we're going to talk about some political cartoons later tonight. She wants to come after me. Oh, could you give her a moment here? Go ahead. Uh, yes. So, I feel that it can be tied into religion, right? Because it. Christianity, well, let's be honest and frank. The United States was founded on Christian principles. Okay? Judeo-Christian Judeo, Judeo principles. Yes, okay, I stand corrected. Yep. I sit corrected. Um, and so the wife had to submit to the husband, and the husband was the leader of the household. Thus, the husband was the one who had to vote. So did women get the right to vote because they kind of steered away from those religious ideas? So, you, oh, that's a good no, statement. No, so, no, in other words, see, the women, uh, would you agree influence. with that, Adam? That suffrage came as a result of a certain degree of secularism? Secularism? No. No? No, the, the, the suffragettes were very religious in America. They were uh, Protestants. In fact, the other their other cause was prohibition. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. Which is terrible. Adam, I you think. know that was coming. So, you know. I just it, like teed it up it perfectly. It was a very for Protestant. Thing and in fact, I, I grew up near Evanston in Illinois, in Chicago, and Evanston was the headquarters of the National Christian Women's Temperance Union. And until you know the 1980s, you couldn't buy a drink in Evanston. So if you weren't to Northwestern, you couldn't uh, get drunk at a dorm party. So uh, th- you know that's the thing we have to keep in mind. Okay, now, well, let's ask Adam. What do you think was the motivating factor for men to finally? relent and allow women to vote was it the they were the fearing with the, it the, <laughs> fear the life of the living room of their home or was it just time that's an excellent question and, and i agree from the earlier comment that there's there was a lot of religious uh, polarization on both sides and that you're going to see this battle as we talk about it tonight but eventually over time and that's really what this story is about about how these courageous women who did not give up and they kept the, kept on pushing and they moved boundaries and uh, they they moved that boulder uphill and that's what we're going to talk about tonight um, so the other point i wanted to make is uh, since we, we talked about uh, that part of the country so you mentioned the midwest so so uh, it was not New York City where the initial drive came from, and that brings us, by the way, to I think it's probably the fourth slide. So I want to talk about the Seneca Falls Convention in 1848. So this is the first time that you have, and this also gets to a religious conversation, the first time that you had a, a formal convention for women's rights, the first American convention for women's rights, and it was held in a chapel, which was a Wesleyan or Wellesleyan chapel, and most of the women who were there, or at least the organizers, most of them were Quakers, and the Quakers, this is to Ed's point, were very activists. They didn't like, uh, most of them, many of them were, I won't say most because I don't know, but many of them were abolitionists, and many of them did not agree with uh, drinking because they saw the abuse that could happen when men would get drunk and beat their wives uh, and other problems that would happen. Well, you know, Betsy Ross, who designed our initial flag, which has been disrespected recently, Betsy Ross was a Philadelphia Quaker abolitionist. These uh, people we're going to be talking about tonight, they wore multiple hats, so they weren't just suffragettes, 
meaning they weren't just fighting for women's suffrage, they were also fighting in many cases to get rid of slavery and yep. for other kinds of social changes. But tonight the story is going to be about about the right to vote. So who attended this very important convention in Seneca Falls, which wasn't New York City, it was in um, upstate New York. Right. Uh, so who attended this convention? And the quick answer is it was organized by Lucretia Mott, and she's one of her heroes tonight, Lucretia Mott, and then a bunch of other women who were organizers, Jane Hunt and Martha Wright and Marianne McClintock, and importantly, Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And Elizabeth Cady Stanton is going to become one of the big organizers who, along with Susan B. Anthony, lead the struggle. And uh, I don't want to skip ahead too much, but this is 1848. We don't get the right to vote for women until 1920. So the here I'm going to throw out to you that there were about 250 people who attended this convention in 1848, and of, um, at the end of the convention they put together a, a bunch of motions that were and resolutions that were adopted, and most of the resolutions dealt with other issues like equal pay and respect and other kinds of treatment for women, property rights, etc. And the one amendment or the one resolution uh, which was not unanimously approved at this convention in Seneca Falls was the right to vote, because uh, in fact it was Lucretia Mott said to said to Elizabeth Cady Stanton that ye will make us ridiculous if we vote on this this motion. This is you know, this is highly controversial to allow women to vote. It was unheard of. But they wanted to push the boundaries and they anticipated that there would be a lot of resistance. And it wasn't just women that, that were at this convention. You also had uh, one of my favorite abolitionists was um let me just make sure I get all the names right. But uh, who did I want to say was at the convention? But um so I mentioned Frederick Douglass. That's who it is. So Frederick Douglass, who was a very famous former slave, he spoke at the convention, and he helped convince everybody, along with the organizers, to vote for that resolution, which we also move and try to advocate for the, the right to vote. And that was the only proposal that didn't go through unanimously. And that goes to show that, that it was not something that was uh, – this, this was uh, this was a very far-sighted of them to be trying to get the right to vote because uh, they knew it would take years and years to accomplish it. So of the 100 people who saw and they put together a Declaration of Sentiments I should describe. So um, let me tell you what the Declaration of Sentiments says, and this will sound very familiar to some of you. And uh, before we blurt out where this comes from, I want everyone to think about it as I read some of this language. So as part of the convention, they put together a Declaration of Sentiments, and the Declaration of Sentiments uh, begins by saying, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, and I'm skipping ahead. The history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations on the part of man towards woman. Um, skip ahead, it talks about how when in the course of human events, and I'm skipping back and forth, it becomes necessary for one portion of the family of man to assume among the powers of the earth, and it goes on to talk about a different um, and a hitherto role that hadn't been allowed before. Where is that language coming from? What, is that, what does that sound like when you hear, we hold these truths to be self-evident? The Declaration of Independence. Declaration of Independence, exactly. So uh, to their credit, the organizers of the Seneca Convention, this is Stanton and Mott, realized that let's build upon the Declaration of Independence. We are declaring our independence in some respects as women, and that was signed by 100. So there were 250 women who attended and participants, only 100 signed. And uh, interestingly, only one of the signers, people did the history and they looked at the records, only one, it's all available online, only one of the signers of the, of the 100 who signed lived to 1920 to be able to vote in the presidential election of 1920. So it just ha happened to be, and this is a good trivia question, Charlotte.
Charlotte Woodward was 19 years old in 1848, and I did the math, she would have been 92 in the year 1920, so she was the only woman from that group of organizers who lived to see the day to, to vote. And that tells you that this struggle lasted from 1848 all the way to 1920. So talk about patience and fortitude to, to, to hold it out and to keep pushing the ball. Okay, well, wait a minute. I got a little nugget here. Okay. I was in a little town called Felsmere for one of my daughter's rowing regattas, and they were rowing in a canal, meaning it was by time instead of a race. Just row down the canal, whoever had the best time wins. And I noticed in a, on a memory placard, a marker, the first woman to vote in the United States was for uh, governor in the prohibition ticket two years before the women were the, had the rights to vote. Her name was Zena Dreyer who voted in a local election, and she cast a vote on June 19th, 1915, which is five years before the rest of the United States. So there was, Florida was burning a trail, the first woman to actually vote. So they must have let her vote, even though it wasn't a right. And I just thought I'd throw that out there. I didn't hear you, Manny. What state was that? Florida. Felsmere, Florida. And I was looking for it on the internet because I saw the placard when I was up there for for the rowing regatta. And remember, women were voting in New Jersey prior to 1807, and they were voting in Wyoming well before the federal government allowed them to vote in federal. Oh, so this is no big deal. Well, it's still it earlier than any. We're going to do some chronology tonight. So Florida, by allowing uh, in 1915, was uh, was ahead of some of the other states. Ed, do you allow your, uh, Katrina to vote? Oh, sure. Oh, okay, just want to make sure. So I want to give more information about uh, two of the heroes tonight, Lucretia Maud and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And remember that this convention, the first women's rights convention, was in 1848 in Seneca Falls. But uh, where did they meet? And the quick little background here is that they were abolitionists and they came from very active Quaker families, although Cady Stanton wasn't a Quaker. And they actually met in London because they were attending a, uh, there was the London abolitionist convention, a big world abolition conference in 1840 in London, and uh, they were denied the ability they attended with their husbands. In fact, one of them, this was uh, Caddy Stanton, was uh, there on her honeymoon with her husband, and she was denied the ability to sit in the same gallery with the men. She was not allowed to speak, and she was sat behind, all the women had to sit behind a curtain in another gallery. So even the abolitionists, who were pretty progressive from the standpoint of wanting social change, weren't allowing women to participate in their abolition convention. So this illustrates how they were up against a, uh, a, there was a boulder they had to move up a hill. So that was in London. And um, what else? William Lloyd Garrison, who was a right. famous American abolitionist, was at that convention in 1840, and he sat with the women who were denied the right to sit in the general population at that London convention. Uh, so that's a little bit of background about how Caddy Stanton and Lucretia Mott met in 1840. And then finally they have the convention that they organized in 1848 in America. And I encourage folks that when you're in that part of the, uh, the upstate in New York, there's a, and I've got pictures of it on the PowerPoint presentation, they, uh, they made a national monument where they have the, the Wesleyan Chapel where that convention was held. And they also have uh, other historic sites which include Mott's House and some of the other houses of these organizers of that Seneca Falls Convention. <clears throat> So now, I want to throw out to you that although this is the first time you've had a women's rights convention focusing on women's rights issues in America, uh, I don't think that our group that I'm focusing on tonight are the first female um, uh, 
I'll be careful how to describe it, but these aren't the first feminists. There were other feminists. So um, I'm going to point to a very famous first first lady, and there's some famous... Abigail first- Adams. Thank you. There you go. So Abigail Adams, um, who spent, as we've talked about in other nights, she spent uh, years and large portions of time away from John Adams because he was traveling to various locations, including across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, to do uh, to represent America in uh, various capitals in Europe. So the, the letters that she sends to John Adams and the correspondence back and forth is a very valuable, and that's one of the things we like to do on the Snapshots and Stories website, is uh, to use and to get our hands in the weeds with some of these primary sources, letters back and forth between the founders and the mothers, the founding fathers and founding mothers. So there's a famous letter that she writes in March of 1776, and in a way this dovetails back again to the Declaration of Independence. So she writes a famous letter to this is Abigail Adams, who would become the first lady when John Adams became president in uh, Washington left in 1796. So Adams is the president from 1796 to 1800. So she becomes the first lady in 1800. But this is in 1776 when John Adams is leading the um, the Patriots in Philadelphia. So she writes a letter. It's known as the Remember the Ladies letter. So let me read you real quickly from a little bit of what she writes. And she says to John in March of 1776, and she's writing from Braintree, which is in Massachusetts where she lives. She says to John, Remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited powers into the hands of the husbands. Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. And she then warns him. So she says, if particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion. So she's saying, you know, look out for the women who are fighting against Britain. We want to get rights, but we want rights too. So here, and this is not a fair question, but how do you think John Adams responds when he gets that letter from Abigail Adams in 1776? You're, cra- you're crazy. No. So he, he's a politician. How, do, how does the politician respond when you have a tricky question? Honey, you're right. He created a committee to study the issue. <laughs> no, I like that answer. So he, he's dealing with his wife, so I don't know that he can have a committee to respond to his wife, but he uses his... Wait a minute. All women said they're committees. Me, myself, and I, that's a committee. Okay, what, was your, what would be your answer? Let's see. I'd have to speak to cabinet about that right was or, he he was president already correct no adams in no. 1776 oh was no no he wasn't at the uh congressional congress okay so your answer would I'd be i'd have to speak to con- congressional congress about that and then we'll go from there honey sweetheart honey bee that wasn't good either come on adam give us the answer what's the answer those are good safe answers remember <laughs> John is in Philadelphia, and Abigail is writing from Massachusetts. Oh, saying, oh, I got one. Uh, yeah. Honey, we'll, 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 we'll discuss this when I get there. That's another political strategy, kick the bucket, right? Kick the bucket, and of course, I got to go down there with a horse and chariot, so it could be months. So by that time, she might have forgotten about the, the issue to begin with. All right, Rather go. Than taking a fight with his wife, because he's not sure if she's serious or not, and the letter seems to me she's serious. So he responds with humor, and he talks about how if he gives them too much, there would be the tyranny of the petticoat, because back then women used to wear these these petticoat dresses, uh, which were um, limited their mobility. But in any event, so he responds with humor in John Adams' characteristic style. So that's a little bit about that. You know, this notion of women having rights doesn't begin in 1848. There were other feminists well before 1848. Maybe later tonight we can talk about some of the some of the names. And we do not have enough time tonight. I'll point out to go through all the. Well, because we have our special guests representing the future of this country, you can go as long as you wish. 
Because anything to keep these young people here. Otherwise, it's just me and Ed, you know what I mean? So, so. so if anyone is following us online, we're going to the slide that talks about strategies. And, and here, this, these strategies, and this is a conversation we can have that can be applied to other political subjects, to, um, to other amendments that we could talk about or to other discussions about uh, other political subjects. And the, what I'm going to point out tonight, one of my themes is that the strategies that these suffragists or suffragists employed, that these women who are fighting for the right to vote, that they employed, um, some of the things that they did, they were the first of their kind to really push the envelope. And the, the determination that they had and the different approaches that they employed, uh, you're going to get to see, were very successful, but it took time. So the first question I'm going to ask is, and this isn't that there's a right answer, but in 1848, when they knew there would be opposition, and remember, only 100 people saw in that petition, even though there were 250 at the convention, you know, should they try to be out, outspoken and try to push the envelope very far, or do you want to take an incrementalist kind of a position and start small? And these are questions not to answer yet, but these are just things to think out loud about. Do you start at the state level or do you start at the federal level? Do you start by trying to raise awareness and writing newspaper articles and letters to the editor and speaking at churches and other events? Um, you know, maybe you take a legal position and you try to argue that, and then this relates to eventually we have the Civil War, and we're going to talk about how the Civil War was the 13th Amendment that we talked about earlier, and then the 15th Amendment gave the former slaves the right to vote. So one of the questions is, do you get involved in the Civil War issues, uh, other issues about how, how do you do demonstrations, what about marches, what about parades? Well, what about the fact that slaves got to vote before women? How do women feel about that? But women help them, though. Help them their right, help right, their right. suffrage or help their freedom. No. In other words, women obviously were in support of uh, of slaves being free, mm-hmm. but did they have an idea that freedom also meant that they were going to have the right to vote? Maybe against their interests when you think about it, because women didn't have the right to vote. Uh, slaves did before then. How did that issue? That didn't fly too well, did it? I mean, women supporting... And, and so, Adam, one thing is, what other country in the world had women voting in that time? So we're going to talk later about some of the marches that the suffragettes would put on. And the quick answer is that Britain gave women the right to vote at around the same time as America. Right. But there were other countries, and it's very similar to Wyoming. So Australia and New Zealand gave women the right to vote. And it may have also been that they wanted to attract women, and that they were being, you know, they were, they were, they were newer countries, if you will, just like Wyoming would have been a newer state. And there were also countries in Europe that had the right to vote. So one of the things that they do when you look at some of these, and it's interesting because I put some of the pictures on the website, when you look at some of these marches, which were very highly organized, they they listed the countries, France, Germany, Finland, Australia, Austria-Hungary, where women were participating in women groups uh, in these other countries, Canada, India, Belgium, Iceland, and they would also, without getting too far ahead of ourselves, so remember, they introduced for the first time the suffrage amendment, which was later called the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. They introduced it in Congress in 1878 is the first time that a congressman, because there were no women in Congress, the first time a congressman uh, puts on the table an amendment to amend the Constitution. That was 1878, so it was slightly after the Civil War. Civil War ends 1865. So every year they bring it back. Hopefully that it'll get amended. So it takes from 1878 until 1919 until finally it gets approved. And 1878 is when it's first proposed in Congress. And uh, what's my point? My point is that uh, you have to decide what strategy should they use. And this, to, to Manny's point, the Civil War was obviously, among other things, but primarily a, a fight over slavery. 
and it upset a lot of the suffragettes that, uh, you know, we're, we're freeing the slaves, but why, and we're giving slaves the right to vote. We talked about the 15th Amendment. Why aren't we including women in the 15th Amendment? Why yes. aren't we allowing women with the same rights as men? Because they thought that, um, and then this gets to the, the dynamics, and interestingly, there are hardliners <laughs> or those who are, we'll call them more moderate in terms of the strategy to move the ball forward. So Susan B. Anthony, and we talked about, um, who else we talked about? We talked about um, Stanton. So their view was, sure, they do support the 15th Amendment, but they would not support it if it would not include women. So ultimately, Susan B. Anthony and Stanton took an all-or-nothing kind of an approach. So they were very in favor of giving African Americans the right to vote, but they wanted African American men and women and white women to have the right to vote. And that created some problems for the women's rights movement because it created a, a split, uh, some who were supporting the 15th Amendment and some who were not. So, and there's no right answer here to you. Um, you, know, you want to build bridges if you're organizing. You want to make alliances, but it created a split that lasted for 20 years between some of the suffragettes who uh, were, were willing to support the um, – and, again, they weren't opposed the, – the women we're talking about tonight, they weren't opposed to freeing slaves and giving slaves the right to vote. They just wanted women to have that same right also. So that was some of the background that was going on behind the scenes. So what are other strategies that people can use? And long story short, um, we'll get later to talk about some of the picketing that they did. And believe it or not, the first group who picketed the White House were suffragettes. And we'll tell some stories tonight about how they, they used that strategy very effectively, especially when World War I started. So let's talk about some more of the chronology. And we just mentioned now some of the strategies that you can use. Do you go state by state? Do you do civil disobedience? Uh, do you picket? Do you do hunger strikes? Uh, are they going to get arrested? So, and you've got different opinions. I mean, why didn't they just choose to lock the bedroom door? That's, That's it. Yet another strategy. <laughs> you mean that would have been more effective? Women just slamming the door, say, "Ah, you're sleeping on the couch until you give us the right to vote," and men would have acted quicker. So let me mention this because it's interesting how you, you, you use there are all kinds of different strategies. It's a real it's a real way to do this. Why didn't they consider that? Yeah, but women had no rights whatsoever. So if they said, "Hey, go That's sleep true. on the couch," okay, they had some rights. But if they said, "Hey, go sleep on the couch," you go, "Okay, no, it's not happening." Oh, pull out the gun. <laughs> right? It, this is my house. You know, the property's under my name. Oh, that's true. That's because she didn't have rights to the home. Yeah, you well, go sleep on the know, couch. Some places they did. Yeah? Yeah. Ed's wondering. He, I, I think I just made Martha him relive Washington a dream. Washington was a wealthy woman. So she, you know, like a guy like George Washington could not boss her around. Now, was she was alive during this? Absolutely not. No, she was already dead, but there were others like her. So I wouldn't, you know. Okay, so I don't know. It's, it's a mute point. Go ahead, Adam. Continue. Make the point about how when you're organizing for a political, whatever it might be, a political movement, what strategies do you want to use? And uh, here's yet another strategy. When there was a very close vote in Tennessee, which eventually became the 36th state and the, the, the necessary state to move them over the line to get it ratified in 19, 1920, <laughs> the holdout member of the Tennessee legislature who... 24 years old, he was sort of on the fence. Should he vote for it or not? And he gets a call from his mother, and his mother tells him, be a good boy and vote for this amendment. So um, it's not just wives telling husbands, it's mothers and sisters and the whole family saying, you know, we want to do the right thing. So let's talk now about the chronology. So we talked about 1848 was the Seneca Falls Convention, and uh, Susan B. Anthony was not at that convention. But she had a similar story where she wanted to speak at a World Temperance Convention in New York in 1853, and she was denied the ability to speak. So uh, she eventually meets... Uh, I know that uh, feeling. 
Okay. So she meets up later. I think it's probably that same year. She meets up with with uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and they become lifelong friends. Those two organizers, Susan B. Anthony, and let me ask the question: um, people who look in their wallets or who uh, look at coins. Uh, why is Susan B. Anthony famous not just for women's rights, but why is she also famous from a standpoint of currency? Susan B. Anthony Dollar. Right. So Susan B. Anthony, I'm, I'm pointing out that uh, you know she really led the movement along with along with uh, Stanton, but uh, she also was famous for having the first uh, you know, currency with a real woman on it. There were prior bills or, or prior coins that had um, Lady Liberty, but that's not a real person. That's sort of a, an uh, image who, who of, said? of uh, what Liberty would look like. That's not a real person, Lady Liberty, although they, they, they joke that the first coin from Mrs. Hamilton was, was involved in creating the mint. So the first American coin, which had a female figure on it, may have been modeled after Martha Washington, but we'll, we can talk about that another night. So my point is that uh, you had this, 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 team, this team of Susan B. Anthony and, and Caddy Stanton uh, would work together for their entire lives, starting in 1853, on this cause. So what else do we have important dates? So in 1866, Anthony and Stanton formed the American Equal Rights Association. They publish newspapers, they publish articles, they publish books, and uh, one of the publications is called The Revolution. So what do, you want, what do you want to call this movement? And they weren't holding anything back. They called it their publication, and they had multiple publications over the years, but their first publication was The Revolution. And then you have the Civil War, and the Civil War sort of slows down the movement because the country is obviously preoccupied with the more important work of, of uh, fighting and winning the Civil War. So that leads us, I'm skipping ahead to 1868, is when the 14th Amendment was approved. And the 14th Amendment, I want to read it to everybody. The 14th Amendment made former slaves citizens. And the 14th Amendment had broad language in it. And remember how the 15th Amendment does not give women the right to vote. It, it only says males. But I want to, if I can find where I don't want to do with it. So the 14th Amendment uh, has important language about being a citizen. So I want to just give you what it's a legal argument that well Adam uh, was that the amendment where the north being the victor in the war actually had to appoint senators to the southern states and lost because they refused to pass this amendment is that or was that the 15th states had been suspended right but you still you still needed senators to vote on the amendment before it goes to the states to get it out of congress yes or no Uh, states put in place conditions that the southern states had to agree to before they could come back in. And one of those conditions was they had to approve the 13th and 14th Amendment. Oh, okay. That's the point I wanted to get across. Okay. Okay. And interestingly, and we talked about this, I believe, on another night, when the southern states eventually came back in and they were off our main subject. When those southern states came back in, they came back in. Once you allow African Americans to vote, they now have more population. Because remember, before the Civil War, African Americans couldn't vote, but they counted as three-fifths of a person. And that was one of the compromises in the Constitution, the three-fifths compromise, which, of course, was a horrible horrible, a horrible decision by the founders. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so that... that um. That also had to do with the monies for Reconstruction after the war, because it was going to be based on state populations in the South. So that was another motivation to pass the 13th, 14th, and in, including the 15th, because now legitimate uh, uh, voter registration-carrying citizens can be counted for monies to repair the South after the war. Mm-hmm. Reconstruction monies. We will definitely have to do another 
show about that, but my point, if, if we're talking about the Civil War, is that when the southern states did come back in, they came in with more representation in Congress than before the war. That's right. Now, for the first time, uh, instead of being three-fifths of a person, an African-American now counts as a full person thanks to the Civil War. And they had more power than the northern states because of they that. They had more votes than they did before. Yes. Right, so let, let's skip ahead now. The Civil War, the 14th Amendment comes in, and this is a sentence I want to read from the 14th Amendment, which is in Section 1, and this is adopted in 1868. It says, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, which was Ed's point earlier, are citizens of the United States. And then it goes on to talk about uh, the protections of the 14th Amendment, which include privileges and immunities of citizens, and you can't deny someone of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So there are a bunch of important, very important provisions in the 14th Amendment. So even though the 14th Amendment didn't allow women to vote, nor did the 15th Amendment, some of the women took the position that, you know what, there's broad language in the 14th Amendment. If, if we're citizens, and citizens can't be denied privileges or immunities, let's challenge this in the court, and let's say that for citizens, citizens, citizens should be allowed to vote based upon the 14th Amendment. So that was another strategy. There's the public education and the protesting strategy. They're going state by state and doing state conventions, but also a legal strategy. So what do you think happened when they brought the lawsuits to try to say that they should have the right to vote under the 14th Amendment? Anyone want to take a guess? Uh, they had no standing. So that's a good question, Ed. I'm not sure if they were allowed to have standing back then, but I think it was just a decision on the merits that no, and it's probably, I would argue, one of the worst decisions along with Dred Scott, and we could debate if we wanted to another night, but uh, the point is that they held that you could still be a citizen, but just because you're a citizen doesn't mean you have the right to work, to vote. In the yeah, because there was a president because they didn't have the right to own property, and yet there were citizens. There are limited rights to own property. Well, women, like women had any. zero right, or they had limited right. Clarify that for I think me. They had limited rights. So how? Uh, it varied from state to state about yeah. property holding. Okay. Uh, that's another question. Should they be trying first to get more rights when it comes to property and rights to education and rights to other areas, or should they mainly focus on on suffrage? And you know that's a decision where people can reasonably disagree. So what's the point? Well, the point is I'll, that I'll tell you. The you know, strategy did not work at the Supreme Court. Uh, so here, skip ahead to the president, presidential election of 1872. So they lose their court battle, and the court, the Supreme Court, is saying that no, you can't vote under the 14th Amendment because you're a citizen, and the citizens have rights, but uh, you're not a full citizen, and you don't have the right to vote even though you're a citizen. So, so just that. a chauvinist decision. Well, you, you know, Adam, on, on the question of education, uh, if you look at some of the Midwestern universities, I know Chicago was founded in 1890. Uh, then the Western University, Stanford, at the same time, they let women in without any exception, whereas the New England colleges didn't let women in until around 1970. So I think that was another. If you look at the land-grant universities like Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois. That late? 1970? Yeah. It, it, Princeton did not let women in until 1970. Harvard had a separate college, Radcliffe. Yeah. Columbia had Barnard. It still has Barnard. So, But if you look at the Midwest and the West, uh, I think that uh, the, the new universities that were founded there Northwestern was there from before. And if you look at the land-grant colleges, I bet, yeah, I think they were letting women in, like, you know, no issue. Uh, land-grant means the state gives the well, land Yeah, the for state, the... like University of Michigan, University of Illinois, University of Wisconsin. Those, I think, uh, let, let women in without an issue. 
whereas the the New England colleges and universities are privately held. Yeah, private. I don't know about the public ones either, but they they didn't let women in until 1970. Wow. With, with that said, there were some private colleges, and I'll mention some of the names. 1833 is Oberlin is the right. first university to be uh, to allow uh, in the Midwest with women. In the Midwest. 1837 is Mount Holyoke. I think you mentioned Vassar, Wellesley, and Smith. This is in the yeah. 1830 time frame. Um, but those were all women. They were not co-ed. They were, well, some, some of them, Oberlin was the first co-ed. Right. But you're right. And there were different ways to try to move the ball of, of a women's rights. And one of the ways was to get education. And then yep. when you prove that women can be doctors and lawyers, that makes it easier to convince men to allow women to vote. So there are different strategies, and I'm not saying that any one is better than another, and we're going to see it took all the strategies in order for them to succeed in 1920. So, uh, by the way, the Supreme Court case, which held... Therefore, we go back to incrementalism. Little by little, it just happened. Do you take half a loaf, or do you insist on a whole loaf? So the case, 1875, and I'm going to not pronounce it correctly, is Minor versus Haberset, and that's when the Supreme Court held that citizenship does not include the right to vote for women, so they lose that legal battle. But Susan B. Anthony votes in the presidential election of 1872, and it's not a fair question, so I'll have to give you hints. But um, she says, you know what, I'm going to vote anyway, and I'm going to bring a lawsuit. So Susan B. Anthony uh, votes in the presidential election of 1872. She was anticipating they turn her away, but they let her vote. But then she got arrested after she voted, uh, and uh, they prosecuted her. So what did they do with the ballot? <laughs> who did she vote for in 1872? And my hit is going to be she voted for someone who was a general, and this is after the Civil War. Grant. Grant, yes. He, right. And Manny got that. So, where, so where did she vote? In Evanston? Did she, she vote in Illinois? She was tried, and uh, she was fined $100, and she said, um, fine, I'm guilty. I did vote, but I'm not going to pay the $100. <laughs> I will never pay the $100. And uh, they decided not to throw her in jail. But uh, there is, so, these days I'll put it on the website. So where was she voting? Was she voting in Evanston, Illinois? You know what? I have to check where it was. So yeah. I'm not sure where she voted. That would be interesting. Smarty Pants Ed is trying to, you know, no, because I think the, the Midwestern uh, schools and generally people were more open to having women vote Midwestern and Western, because partly they just wanted to get some women out there. Right, and I think that, um, that there there may have been religious differences, by the way, that some of the, the, the Northeastern states and there were cultural differences, uh, and maybe the Western states understood that women were doing a lot of the work because, uh, you know, the Western states... Uh, you don't have some of the luxuries that you may have in some of the larger, bigger cities on the east. So we talked about the court battle was, was lost. That was 1875, and Susan B. Anthony tries to vote and challenge it in the courts another way. She loses. Uh, 1878, finally, they prevail upon Congress, and I mentioned this earlier, to introduce what will eventually be called the Susan B. Anthony Amendment to amend the federal constitution to allow women to vote. So that's introduced in 1878, and it takes 10 years before they get a vote in 1887, almost 10 years, and it's defeated in the Senate. So that a proposed amendment introduced in 1878 is defeated in 1887, and every year... And the, defeated by men generally, or part, who got the blame, That's the parties, or, or men? No. Was it a, obviously... No. Yeah, was there poorly a stated, because of then, course there were only men. Like there is now? Federalists or Democratic Republicans were blamed? It was a bipartisan problem, both the... Okay, so it was, a, it was still a gender issue. Okay. So the Republicans and the Democrats... Uh, and there were different parties we could talk about, but the long story short, uh, they made they made no headway, and uh, it, every year they would bring it back and reintroduce it, and every year they would get shot down, and they would go to hearings, and they would testify at the hearings, and I'm going to put on, on the website, 
that just purchased a newspaper article from that time frame from the 1870s, and it talks about what was going on in these in these hearings and the, and the women who were the activists. Uh, as we talked about with some of the marches, they would bring in witnesses from around the world who were voting, explaining that uh, the sky doesn't fall when you allow women to vote, and the gender roles don't uh, go out the window. Uh, and even if you think women are different than men, because that was a big issue back then, what's going to happen if you allow women to vote? Um, you know, women can bring other things to bear, even if they can't be police officers, at least in the thinking back at the time. They can still do other important jobs, and they can bring their common sense to the ballot box just like anybody else. So what's the point? Uh, we're in 1887, and it's defeated in the Senate, but they don't give up. They keep coming back every single year for 40 years, bringing it back to the Congress to see if we can move it. So in the 1890s, uh, this is an important time, and we talked about Wyoming. Wyoming gets admitted as a as a state, and Wyoming holds the line and says, we're not going to come in unless you allow women to vote. So that becomes the first state to allow, it comes in as a state in 1890, uh, allowing voting at state-level elections. Let's move ahead to other western states. This is the point you were making, that Utah, Idaho, and Colorado, also in the 1890s time frame, allow women to vote. So it's not the eastern states. It's the, the Midwest or here is the western states. These are the new, the new states, Utah, Idaho, and Colorado. But by 18, really the turn of the century, you only have a handful of states where women can vote in state elections. Uh, so this is eventually you're going to see the, the period of time, the 1890s to the 1920s is the progressive era, which is expanding the role for women. They're working in factories, and they're saying if we can work in factories, we should have the ability to keep our own salary. And remember, back in the 1800s, a woman would have to give her earnings. She couldn't keep it to her father or to her husband. She couldn't own property. So um, let's now go to the presidential election of 1912. And Teddy Roosevelt had been president, but he's now running as the new party that he creates, the Bull Moose Party. And uh, Roosevelt, interestingly, becomes the first presidential candidate to support suffrage for women, the first national party to do that, which is the Bull Moose Party in 1912. So, again, we're moving the ball forward. Even though it's not the major parties, it's the Bull Moose Party, but at least we're getting a presidential candidate, which is a former president, Roosevelt, who is now supporting women's suffrage. And now we're getting more marches around the country. In 1912, there's an important march in New York City, and we've got pictures of it on the website. 20,000 women marching okay. this. Well, wait a second. No, what, when we're going to talk about the cartoon, the uh, No, I want to know, the were posters. they wearing uh, uh, pink hats? So all kinds of hats, but the color that they decide to wear is white. And I can't talk about the hats because I don't know that. There are all kinds of different uh, big vocal hats. You want to stand out, right? Yeah. So, uh, so we will talk about some of the political cartoons, but I'm just giving the, the, the momentum that's happening. So you start with these marches, uh, you move the march to New York City, 20,000 that are marching, and there's, there's violence. There are protesters who are jeering and throwing things and beating up some of the women at these, at these marches, and they're doing marches in all the different states. They're organizing at a state-by-state -state level, uh, because eventually if this is going to go through, you need to get it through the different state legislatures to get it ratified. So the first suffrage march in Washington, D.C. is in 1913 down Pennsylvania Avenue. In 1915, and these are the eastern states, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, vote to deny the right to vote. So we got it to a vote. In imagine, now, um, now imagine the distraction going on in this country over this issue. You can see how income tax and Amendment 17 could pass in 1913 without much uh, opposition. Because the women were all over the place raising hell. I mean, you're, you're saying down Pennsylvania Avenue in 1913, that was the year that the, well, it wasn't the only year. I mean, uh, the passage of the other two amendments, 16 and 17, were going on since 1911. But you can see in 1913, 
with all this ruckus going on, you can see how these this abomination could have passed. Two terrible amendments have set this country back forever. Okay, continue. Well, we we're down to four minutes. There was a lot of political change happening. You mentioned the Seventeenth Amendment, which is election of senators, direct election of senators. Terrible. We can talk about the Twentieth Amendment and the. Of course, Adam uh, thinks that's more democratic. The Eighteenth is the Prohibition Amendment, so that passes before women's suffrage. So nineteen. I don't know the exact date. I'd have to check, but the Eighteenth Amendment, which is before women had the right to vote was prohibition taking away alcohol so there's a lot of change that was taking wait a place. second i thought women were the deciding factor in that in that vote they were a big part yeah ed are you miss are you misinforming our audience i had i was thinking that women voted for prohibition no they didn't vote for it but the suffrage movement supported prohibition it, the prohibition amendment was put in there before the suffrage amendment but the suffragettes supported prohibition oh there's, there's a lot of carryover and crossover. Yeah. Yeah, but that's not the same thing. I it's thought it was like women misused their, their right vote, vote by voting against alcohol upon giving them the right to vote. That's different. It's pretty close. Come on, man, you misogynist, you know. Yep. I'm defending women on this one. I, I, this whole time I thought it was women that actually misused their right to vote by doing something so ludicrous as banning the booze. The suffragettes... Supported prohibition overwhelmingly, and and uh, Elizabeth yeah, Cady and there. Susan that's, B. Anthony were a couple of that's just propaganda. Temperance, sure, uh, big uh, deal. Temperance uh, reformers. Yeah, yeah. Temperance this. Okay, okay. Continue, Adam. You have now. You're down to three minutes. Are we really only three? So we we're not going to be able to finish everything tonight. But the point is, that it was one step forward, sometimes two steps back, two steps forward, one step back. So New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts deny the right to vote. Uh, then Janet Rankin is voted in from Montana to be the first woman elected to Congress. That's 1916. 1917, we've got World War One that's going on. And uh, here I'm going to point out that uh, there are different approaches. How, how much do you want to push the envelope? Do you support World War One? And a lot of the suffragettes, this is Manny, your point about they supported other causes. Many of them were pacifists. So do you support World War One or do you protest World War One? And remember, well, they were absolutely right in well, that case. I'm not a pacifist, but I would have. I would have opposed it. Yeah, man. World War One was an abomination. It was the so stupidest here, war. Let me ask everybody, what was Wilson when he gave his uh, speech calling for the declaration of war? What Stay was out of the war. The war to make the world safe for... Democracy. Democracy. So the suffragettes realized, let's support World War One, even though some of us are pacifists, because there's major hypocrisy here. If we're going to vote and kill, you know, vote to go into war, and our sons and our husbands are going to die in this war in Europe fighting against the Axis powers. The Allies are fighting since World War One. Uh, so the, the point is that if we're going to vote for democracy, we don't have democracy at home. So uh, and this, it was another split. Do we support the war or not? So by this time, Susan B. Anthony had passed away, as had, as had Stanton. But the self-appointed successor, who Susan B. Anthony uh, found would, would be, you know, she thought was a good organizer also, was Carrie Chapman Catt, C-A-T-T. So Catt is the woman who sort of takes on the, 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 the title of a lot of the organizing after Susan B. Anthony, and she makes a decision, let's fully support the war effort. 
but let's not try to get in the way of uh, undermining and protesting during a war. Let's support the war. But some of the suffragists uh, realize that this is an opportunity to poke in the eye and to make noise. And so I'm going to talk now about Alice Paul real quickly. So Alice Paul um, is, is more in your face. And Alice Paul took the position that, no, let's protest in front of the White House, even if there's a war, and let's make it clear to President Wilson that uh, we're fighting for democracy. What about us? So um, let me talk real quickly about some of the White House protests, and some of this is after the war. Uh, so if you flip through the PowerPoint, you'll see some of the pictures about daily protesting in the sleet and in the freezing rain and in the cold temperatures. So daily picketing from January of 1917, uh, for over a year, more than a 1,000 women joined the picket line. And uh, let's see, women are coming from all different states to be there holding signs. And ultimately, by November of 1917, over women from 22, 26 different states, 218 of them have been arrested for obstructing the sidewalk. That was what some of them were being arrested for, obstructing the sidewalk traffic, believe it or not. And today, I believe it. I was almost arrested for walking on the sidewalk, giving out handouts as PTA president. And my principal went to the police department and said, you got to arrest him. He's, he can't be doing that. Are you kidding me? I should have done that with a wig and a dress. So the majority of these women were just quietly holding a sign, and nevertheless, uh, 218 of them were arrested over that year. And eventually Wilson decides uh, enough already, and he agrees to, to support the amendment. And what else can I point out to you? Maybe another night we'll go through some of the political cartoons, Manny. So I, I want to— You just call me Minnie. Did I hear you, Minnie? You just called me Minnie like Minnie Mouse? Oh, my God. This is so terrible. Let me talk about the suffrage flag. So Alice Paul, who is a very good organizer, uh, once it gets adopted through Congress, it has to go through the 36 states have to agree to support and ratify the 19th Amendment. And there's a very famous flag, which is the suffrage flag. And as, as a state would adopt and ratify, they would add another flag onto that gigantic another star, I should say, onto their gigantic flag. So if anyone is online and looking at uh, some of the, the pictures, uh, there's a very famous picture of her holding that flag once Tennessee adopted the Constitution or adopted the 19th Amendment, and she's holding in her hand a glass to do a toast. So here, and I'm very serious to ask this question, what do you think Alice Paul is holding in the in her hand in the, in the glass that she's uh, making the toast in front of that big suffrage flag when it finally gets adopted? What do you think she's going to drink with when she makes the toast? Milk. Milk? What else? So it's going to be the same color as wine, but non-alcoholic. Right. Lemonade. <laughs> Apple and juice. Also, it's a purple color, and uh, it tastes like wine, but there's no alcohol in it. Grape juice. Grape juice. So that famous picture of, uh, of Alice Paul holding um, you know, the glass, standing in front of the big suffrage flag, which, by the way, was a gold, white, and purple tricolor flag. Uh, she's giving a grapefruit juice toast because she was not in support of alcohol. That's another conversation. Yeah, for it, it's, it's something uh, that uh, American uh, Baptists, especially Protestants, when they take communion, they don't take uh, wine. They take grape juice, which I find disgusting, but that's okay. It's a theological point. It's symbolic when we yes. take communion. Yeah, so point the, that out. they don't give you real wine. So you I guys don't are not allowed that. to. I'm a Catholic here. I know, I know. That's okay. We're having an interdenominational <laughs> dispute here, Adam. You can't consecrate the body of Christ on the earth. With grape Turn juice. up the music, listen to music, and be done with it. Grape juice, I agree. <laughs> All right, Adam. Adam, you know, uh, I think you're awesome. That was great. Listen, yeah, I, time for just a couple other names. Yeah, go ahead. Up. Go ahead, Adam. 
Okay, so there are a whole list, and I haven't done justice to all of them, but there's a whole list of suffragettes over the struggle to get with the women the right to vote. So I want to talk about Sojourner Truth real quickly, and you'll see how a lot of these women were, were abolitionists, and they had other causes that they supported as well. But let me talk briefly about Sojourner Truth, because I did some research about her background. So she gave a very famous speech, and... Uh, and I'm just quoting from uh, the way that it's titled. The name of the speech was Ain't I a Woman? And uh, her point was that, uh, you know, she, a lot of the, and this gets into the, the, the history and uh, the, the conventions at the time, a lot of those who opposed giving women the right to vote thought that women were special, that women, you had to throw down your, your jacket if there was uh, mud on the ground so that women could walk over it, and you had to be a gentleman, and they were chivalrous. So they were worried that we would lose uh, some of this protection and special treatment for women if we allowed them to go into the dirty world of, of, of politics, and that women aren't... Now look... Now they're in track and field, and and men the, are in track and, the and the Boy field. Scouts, and men are in the yeah, no, yeah. women's sports, right? And then men are heading to women's sports. Oh my God! All right. So, so my my point is that there's a very, very famous speech that Sojourner Truth, and again, she's mainly famous for being an abolitionist, but that she was also in favor of giving women all kinds of rights. So what does she say in this famous speech? That um, that uh, one of these days we'll go into more detail. But her point is that let me give you some of the background. Um, she's six feet tall. She was really, really tall, and she had been a slave, but she was freed. And uh, this was a convention where she goes up to talk, and she asks for permission. You know, should I be allowed to talk? And she says, I'd like to say a few words. So this is an extemporaneous speech that she gives. This is in the 1850s. I'll have to double-check the date. And uh, the background is she came forward to the platform uh, addressing the president of the convention, and she said, with great simplicity, may I say a few words? And uh, once she got an answer that, yes, you may proceed, she gave this speech. And the gist of the speech was, and I'm going to quote some of it, I want to say a few words about this matter of the rights for women. I am in favor of women's rights. I have as much muscle as any man. I can do as much work as any man. I have plowed, I have reaped, and I have husked and chopped and mowed and can do any more and as much as a man can do. I have heard much about the sexes being equal. I can carry as much as a man. I can eat as much as a man, too. And she goes on to talk about how I've been whipped and just like the men get whipped and beaten. Uh, so she goes on to say, I can't read, but I can hear. I have heard the Bible and I've heard that Eve caused men to sin. Well, if women upset the world, do give her a chance to set it right up, uh, to set it right side up again. Uh, toward the end of the speech, which is the famous part, she says that man says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches and uh, to be the, the best, to be in the best place everywhere. In other words, if you're in a bus, for example, get up to allow a woman to sit. So she's saying that no one ever helps me into a carriage or mud puddles or gives me the best place. So she ends by saying, I have plowed and planted and no man can outwork me. Ain't I a woman? So... Uh, and was it a, like a rousing applause? Yeah, absolutely. She shut down that crowd, and they realized that uh, this is someone we have to listen to. So that's uh, so yeah, or get your yeah. butt whooped because she's okay. six foot tall. All right, so uh, Adam, um, let me make a non-constitutional uh, point here about women, and maybe we can do this Wait at a some minute. other do, do some other point. Or what? I, I think that if you look at the the the, the colonization of the United States, America versus, say, Latin America, it is a huge advantage to America, and especially, well, America was settled 100 years later, that the, the colonization was done with women. Because, for example, the pilgrims came, husbands and wives, families, 
Virginia, to some extent, were women in the settlers. But if you compare that with the Spanish conquest of Latin America, it was a very much a, a man uh, conquering another civilization. And I think men behave differently when they don't have women around. And I think it was a big advantage for America. And also it had to do with the the, the uh, latitude that women, European women could survive in America in ways they couldn't in the tropics. So I think it's a huge advantage for American civilization generally to have included women and, you know, eventually they got the right to vote. They should have gotten it right away. But I think women have played a big part in making America a more successful civilization. And you can see it right here in the Western Hemisphere. No, you can see it right here on WSQF oh, Blink yeah. Radio. I bet. Because the future is here. So to be continued, there's a lot more. There's, there's uh, all kinds of good information on this subject. And it gets to social movements and how social movements succeed, and it was a struggle. But I, I want to thank everybody, including those in the studio and those listening, and I'm signing off uh, until next week. Thank you, Adam Levinson of Statues and Stories. That's the end of our show. And remember, stay free, my friends, because America is simply the greatest country in the world. I'd like to thank our guests. I think it's pretty awesome that you guys have come here, and you've shared your thoughts, your minds, and your souls, and you've given me great hope that we actually have the opportunity to save this country with ideas. Stay free, my friends. She stood there bright as the sun on that California coast. He was a Midwestern boy on his own.